When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. They had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, give us a fresh understanding of who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that as we work our way through this passage, that this will not just be an exercise in intellectual knowledge, but that this would stir our hearts to know that our Savior is indeed God in the flesh. And He is with us. I pray that that truth will resonate in our hearts and our minds so that we would not be fearful and so that we would look to him and trust him and that we would follow the example of the disciples and gladly receive him be glorified father in Jesus' name amen one of the things that I enjoy about reading history is that you come across things that at one time people said would never happen for example, at the, mid, at the turn of the 20th century, thought was being expressed about a horseless carriage, a carriage that would actually propel itself. And people laughed at that idea and said, a horseless carriage? That's crazy. Until Henry Ford hit the streets of Detroit in what he called his quadricycle, a horseless carriage. For a long time, people thought the idea of someone running a mile in less than four minutes was crazy. Nobody, they said, could run a four-minute mile until in 1954, Roger Bannister ran the mile in just a second under four minutes. And by the way, the current record for a mile is three minutes and 43 seconds. That's moving along. That would be a large bear chasing me. People said the idea of having light in a room without a fire is impossible. Never until Thomas Edison comes along. Man flying never happened until the Wright brothers proved them wrong on the shores of North Carolina. Walking on water never happened except for Jesus. Except for Jesus, the one man in history who has walked upon the water without the aid of any sort of technological invention. Jesus. The one and only to walk upon the water. Now, as with all miracles, the main point of this miracle is not for us to be amazed at the power of God to overcome and supersede the laws of nature which He created. But this miracle, like the others in the Gospels, is to point us to the identity of Jesus. So that we would read this miracle and we would come away saying, Jesus is not just a man. 
So this miracle reveals that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. Now to understand that, let's take a step back again and see the big picture of John chapter 6. Last week I pointed out from verse 4 that the events that take place in John chapter 6 revolve around the Passover. Now the interesting thing is that three Passovers are mentioned in the Gospel of John. Only two of them find Jesus in Jerusalem. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem and as the Passover is there, Jesus teaches that He is the true temple. He is the true sanctuary where they will meet and know the presence of God. In John 13, Jesus is back in Jerusalem with the Passover. And there he emphasizes that he is the Passover lamb that will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. John chapter 6 begins with Jesus performing the miracle of feeding the 5,000. He multiplies bread and fish. And he does so to set the stage for this truth. That Jesus is greater than the manna that God provided from heaven to the children of Israel in Exodus. Jesus will teach that he is the bread of life. He is superior to that manna because he gives life eternal. In fact, verses 22 through 71. That is Jesus' teaching about who he is. So the question becomes, how does walking on the water fit the context of the Passover? How does this connect? Now on one level, John is simply following the, the storyline that Matthew and Mark lay out. Because they teach us that chronologically after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he walks on the water. So on one level, John is simply following the gospel narrative as things unfolded. And John follows suit with Matthew and Mark. But this chapter emphasizes the Passover. So we come back to our original question. How does the walking on water connect with the Passover? And I think the answer is found in how the Exodus is celebrated by the Jews. During the Passover, specifically at the end of it, the patriarch of the family would recite what's called the Haggadah. The Haggadah tells the story of the Exodus. And it emphasizes not only that God delivered His children, but that God provided manna from heaven and that God delivered them by parting the Red Sea. So there's our connection. The miracle of Jesus walking up on the water is connected to the Passover via the idea of the Red Sea. Now just to show that I'm not pulling this out of thin air, when you read in the Psalms, it is emphasized that God walks up on the water in the parting of the Red Sea. So Psalm 77, 19 through 20, which is a psalm that celebrates the Exodus. Your way, that is God's way, was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Now, we could say the footprints were unseen because God is invisible. But based on other psalms that speak of God walking upon the waves, we would say His footprints are unseen because God is walking on the water. And it's painting this picture that as God walks upon the water, He is parting the sea behind Him so that He leads His people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you see this idea of God walking up on the water, parting the sea so that His people could come through.
But there is even a psalm that goes much more in depth to show that Jesus is Yahweh. If you were to set Psalm 107 beside John 6, you would notice some incredible similarities. What are those similarities? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 107, verses 4 through 5 on the left. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Where does John 6 begin? The crowds have come to Jesus, and Mark tells us they came into the wilderness. What happens when they're in the wilderness? They become hungry and thirsty, and Jesus asks the disciples, how are we going to feed them? Now look on the right side, verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul, for the hungry soul he fills with good things. Jesus multiplies the fish and the bread. And what does it say at the end of that? Everyone ate till they were satisfied. God satisfies the longing soul. Jesus satisfies the longing soul. But wait, there's more. Some went down to the sea in ships, it says in Psalm 107. Doing business on the great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plot. They reeled and staggered like drunken men at their wits' ends. What do the disciples do? According to John 6, they get into a boat, they go out to sea. What happens when they're at sea? A storm raises up, rises up, and they are frightened. So what happens? Psalm 107, 28 through 29. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. What does Jesus do? He comes to them, walking on the water, calms the storm. Now, before I look at the next slide, I want to direct your attention back to the text. Look at verse 21, specifically the end. Jesus gets in the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We know they were at least three or four miles out. How close were they to their destination? I would venture they were still a mile or two. But Jesus gets in the boat and bam, immediately they're exactly where they wanted to be. Look at what Psalm 107.30 says. They were glad that the waters were quiet and He, that is God, brought them to their desired haven. What does Jesus do? He calms the storm, he gets in the boat, and boom, they're at their desired haven. Jesus is acting intentionally to show that he is God in the flesh. He is doing this to answer the question, is he just a prophet? And the answer comes back with a resounding no. Jesus is not just a man who has divine qualities. Jesus is God in the flesh. And I say that with confidence because in this miracle, Jesus is doing something that only God can do and that in the scriptures is only attributed to God Almighty. This is his handiwork, his signature. It's like if you were to go to an art uh, exhibit and you were to look at this painting, even if I did not have Water Lilies by Monet, some of you would say, that's pretty. That looks like a Monet, even with no name on it. Or this may be a better example. If you were to look at that, I don't know. I'm just going to put that out there. But it's by Picasso. It is neo-cubist in form, painted around the 1950s. If you will notice the stark lines drawing attention to the neo-cubist idea, you look at that and you know automatically that's the work of Pablo Picasso. When Jesus walks on the water, 
it's clear that he's God. From the Psalms, he's drawing a picture that only God could do. So it becomes a very clear, logical syllogism. If God walks on the water, and only God walks on the water, and Jesus walks on the water, then Jesus must be God. And the beautiful thing is, this tells us more than just God's power. This tells us more than just that Jesus has control and an ability to supersede nature. This miracle tells us something about the character of God. That our God is compassionate. And that He comes to us in the storm. Very subtly, John introduces one of his themes into this passage. Throughout his gospel and even the letters he wrote that are recorded at the end of the New Testament. John draws heavily on the themes of light and dark. Jesus is light. Darkness is to live without Him. So that's why I believe in verse 17 when he makes the statement, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them, it carries more weight than just a phenomenological description of what is taking place. This isn't just saying night had fallen. He's given a description of life without Jesus. Notice what happens next, verse 18. The sea becomes rough, a strong wind is blowing. Now I'd remind you, the majority of the disciples were experienced seamen. Draws attention to the fact that they are rowing. What that means is that they had lowered sail. The storm was so great they were afraid that if they left the sail up, it would be destroyed. If the wind caught the sail, broke the mast, they would really be in a serious spot. So they're rowing. They're not going anywhere fast. Now follow with me. John leaves out a point that Matthew and Mark contain. And he does this to make a point. In Matthew and Mark, we are told that Jesus sent the disciples to the boat. But John omits that. Notice how he describes it. The disciples go down to the sea, get into a boat, and start across. It's because John wants to emphasize this to teach us about the grace of God. He paints the picture so that the disciples are leaving Jesus on their own. That's where the darkness carries more weight than just the idea of night falling. John is saying if you make the decision to walk away from Christ, it's only going to lead to darkness and chaos. If you set out to live life apart from Jesus, darkness will accompany you and chaos will describe your life. That's why it's so important to recognize who Jesus is. That's why knowing who He is adds weight to what He says when he, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because to leave the way sets you up for darkness and chaos. Every temptation we encounter is really a temptation to leave Jesus behind. Because no matter what temptation you face, it is a temptation to do things how you want to do them or to be obedient to Jesus. That's every temptation. Whether it's coveting, whether it's greed, whether it's anger, whether it's lust. It's always a temptation to say, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to follow what I want rather than following Jesus. And when we go down our own trail, it's always destructive. 
In the year 1846, 500 wagons lined up to leave Missouri, making the trek out west. 500 wagons. I have the utmost respect for the early pioneers. I can't imagine the life they lived going and cutting trails in the wilderness. But they were following a well-established trail. They reached a point where all of a sudden a man, a man by the name of Lansford Hastings, came out and approached the wagon train. Hastings said that he had discovered a new route to California. This route would be smoother, it would be quicker, it would save them over 400 miles if they took his route and followed him, and he would be glad to give it to them for a small fee. Nine wagons at the end of that long line took him up on that. Nine wagons that contained two families. The Reed family and the Donner family. If you know American history, things did not work out well. The shortcut was not really a shortcut as they became bogged down in the Sierra Nevada mountains and the majority of the party died. Shortcuts never work out well. And spiritually they are destructive. That's why this miracle is giving us a warning that we need to stay near to Christ. But here's the good news. When you and I veer off course, our God doesn't wipe His hands of us. He doesn't say, that's enough, I'm done. What does He do? He initiates coming to us. In the darkness and the chaos, in the midst of the storm, what does Jesus do? He walks to the disciples. They, are, they aren't crying out. They think Jesus is back on shore. But in His grace, He comes to them. God appears to them in their greatest need. So that even when we veer off path, Jesus is gracious, calling out to us. Now look how the disciples respond. They're frightened. And of course they're frightened. Jesus isn't expected to be there. He's walking on the water. It's a natural response to be afraid. This is something beyond our power, beyond our control. But notice how Jesus responds. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were glad. The presence of Jesus calms fears. Knowing who He is calms fears. Remembering that He is God calms fears. I remember when I was a little boy and I reached that age where my parents trusted me enough that they would leave me at home by myself. Yes, it sounds like a movie entitled Home Alone. And I would put on a brave face. Dad would say, now son, are you okay? We're going to be gone for about an hour. We'll be alright. Dad, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I can do it. I'm a big boy now. The minute they would leave, walk out the door, I would go get my brown blanket and my dad's putter. And I would get on the couch. And I would cover up with the blanket. That way if they came in, they would never see me. And if they did see me, I had dad's putter that I could wield like a sword. And I would stay there on the couch. And then that moment would come. I would hear a car. Is it mom and dad? Is it not? Blanket, putter. Is it them? The doorknob would start to turn. Hey, son, we're home. Oh, it's dad. Fear's gone. It's dad. It is I. Don't be afraid. I don't know what fears grab your heart, but we all face them. I think parents carry extra fear today. 
What if I don't do something right? What if I make a mistake? What if I'm faced with a situation that I don't know what to do? Hear the Lord. It is I. Don't be afraid. He's God. Trust Him. Don't be anxious. But lean into Him. Because He is God. I love how John puts it next because there's something that we miss in the English but is a theme of John. Notice in verse 21 what happens. They were glad to take him into the boat. That phrase to take him in, that same word is translated in other parts of John, received. They received him. John 1 says, to all who received him, he gave the right to be sons of God. Received. It's the opening up of our lives to say, Lord, if without you, I am sunk. Without you, I, I, I don't have any power or control. The storms that happen, I can't control. So I'll receive you, Lord, and I will trust you. See, that's part of the challenge of John, is to believe and to trust him. Because who Jesus is then sets the stage for the discourse that comes in the remainder of the chapter. You see, what we're going to get into in the weeks ahead is a teaching of Jesus that says some very difficult things. In fact, they are so difficult that many of the crowd that had been following Jesus, they end up leaving. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, Are you going to leave too? Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You've got the words of life. Now I want you to keep in mind, the crowd saw the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Only the disciples saw the walking on water. And when the moment came, I really believe that that was fresh in their memory. That Jesus is God. And if He is God, I will find life nowhere else. The identity of Jesus solidified their commitment to follow Him. So I ask you today, have you made that commitment? Have you received Him? Today's a day to take that initial step. In just a few moments, I'll lead us in a prayer. We will stand to begin singing. And Nathan and I will be at the front. And if you want to know more about what it means to receive Jesus, to be a follower of Him, he and I will be here. And what we'll do is we'll pray with you and we will get information on how to follow up during the week. Some of you may be like the disciples. You've gotten into the boat and you've launched out and now the storm is raging. You recognize, I'm scared. Jesus, I need you. Understand how gracious our God is. He doesn't reprimand. He won't look at you and say, you knucklehead. He'll get in the boat with you. And you'll find what you're looking for. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.